driven by excellence, your trusted place for all things logistics and road safety. Today we are joined by Pip Baines, arguably one of the most knowledgeable people in the logistics and compliance sector. Pip has carved himself out a 20-year career within logistics and is here today to share his thoughts and expertise for you, our listeners. Pip, thank you so much for joining us here today at our PDT Driven by Excellence recording studio. I know you and our director have crossed paths many times during your careers and she was really keen to invite you on. We have a lot of hot topics to delve into, so let's get started. Although many of our listeners may be familiar with you, can we start with an introduction to Pip Baines? Who is Pip Baines and what has your 20-year career within logistics been like? Who's Pip Baines? Pip Baines is passionate, he's enthusiastic, he's emotional and he believes. So the 20-year journey I went on, I didn't wake up one day and think, you know what, I'm going to get into transport, that's what I will be doing. I I had the same dream as most kids did, I wanted to be the greatest footballer of all time. Or pilot a plane across the world, and then and then I sort of fell into transport to the CPC back in I think it's two thousand and two. Decided from there that um, I really enjoyed it. I really liked the, the content. Really liked what I was learning from it. And then just by chance, a, a, a job came up. I think it was at, um, the FTA Freight Transport, the then Freight Transport Association, where they wanted somebody to work in their members' advice centre, which was looking at things like legislation and, and relaying that into the bigger industry. So actually advising really, really big players on how to, to operate legally and compliantly. I didn't think, I applied for it. I thought, you know, it'd be okay. I did the first interview and, and, and the questions I was asked and the conversations I, I sort of relayed to was, hang on, this is really interesting. I really like this. This is my niche. And then going for the second interview and then actually passing it and being offered the role I thought, wow, I, you know, I was what, in my thirties. Mm. I didn't have. A, I found my niche, and it was it was really good. And then to sit in a room with people relaying legislation, I thought, this is this is too much. This is over my head. These these guys are talking about as lawyers uh, and barristers, and they really know their stuff. But over time, I learned and I learned more and I learned more. And even though I was being told, answered, I'd go and study it. I needed to know for myself, is that right? Is that correct? Are we given the right information to our members, our then members? And from there, I was went into training and started training um, and legislation to different companies and different types of people. And it just evolved from there. I was, I was approached by quite a lot of companies to come and work from. So I was quite humbled, I suppose, and blessed to be able mm-hmm. to, to pick a role that I could mm-hmm. get into that I knew would help me advance in my career as well. And so moving on and moving upwards, it was, it's been a, it's been a journey. It's been a 20 year journey to, to meet some fantastic people, some wrong people, <laughs> some people that shouldn't be in the industry and, and, and should be out in and some operators probably that, that shouldn't be in the industry as well. But the journey for me has been, has been really, really good and really, really interesting. And I, my advice to most people out there is, listen, you, you might just fall into your niche. You might not even know mm. what you want to do. And when you fall into it, wow. You can really grab it by the horns and and you put everything into it, absolutely everything into it, because you believe. Absolutely. Well, that is an expansive career. Thank you for sharing that. We know that you are a vocal ambassador for safety within logistics. Why is that? What makes you so passionate about it? I care. I genuinely care. Um, I think everybody knows me, knows me quite well. and, and, And I have two sentences. The first one is, we're giving keys um, to human beings to a 44-10 killing machine. And in the wrong hands, that's exactly what it is. So we have to make sure that the roads, 
the drivers, members of the public are all protected, that, that these vehicles are safe. They're looked after well. The drivers themselves know exactly what is expected from them. And that's what it is. It's that passion to really, really care. You do not come into this industry. You can't come into it half-heartedly. You know, it's Marmite. You either love it or you hate it. Don't go for the middle. Because if you go in the middle, you're not putting everything into it. When you come into it, you have to make that difference. And I think there's a really good saying out there. You just you just gather in specs just to build a mountain. And that's what you have to do. But you have to also take people on that journey with you to make sure they fully understand what's expected of them and, and, and why and, and the consequences. If you look at most things, when you look at an accident or a fatality, there's always going to be a, a lorry nearby, either involved or just in that vicinity. And that's when you realise that we're in an industry that, yes, it's heavily regulated, we know that, and it is heavily enforced as well. But we can make it safe and we can make it good and we can make it a really, really good sector to come and work in. So with that passion and that enthusiasm, that's what you've got to get with everybody. That's how you invite people in. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, out of all of what you've done, what would you say has been your career highlight? You know, one of those moments where you've sat back and thought, I've made a positive change here. There's been a few. Uh, I think uh, the most notable ones that, that I can refer to is actually sitting, as I did, as I mentioned earlier at FTA, ivory towers, we called it. Then you're sitting in ivory towers, you're telling everybody how to do everything, but you're not actually having to be there and, and, and watch it happen. So to actually come away from that and down to earth, as I call it, and actually be in an operation and then be able to look at the operation, look at legislation and how that's supposed to fit in and, and what good looks like. And when people are looking at you thinking you can't do it, it's impossible, you can't marry the two up. But then to plant that seed and then watch it grow and then get everybody's buy-in mm. and they're all part of this and you come on that journey with you and they actually does work. You can operate legally, you can still be profitable and, and, and you can be safe. So to me, it's just taking that seed, planting it and watching it grow, which is brilliant. The biggest things that I've done and, and where I've ended up, I've ended up in rooms I probably think I shouldn't be in. I've ended up in um, one George Street at Westminster where we, we have National Council where we can lobby for or lobby against legislation and, and we have a, a voice. I'm British Asian and to be sat in that room and to be the only person of, of my background to be sat in that room, it's daunting. Mm. Uh, but you think, hey, hey, look, I've made it. And then to have people that listen to me and are actually paying attention to what I say. And something that's always stuck with me was First sitting in this room, or it's a massive room with loads of people obviously sat in there, you have to press the microphone and ask for permission to speak. And to be then in that and being a bit nervous at first and thinking, oh, you know, I don't think I don't think I belong here. But then suddenly picking up momentum, having having a point, having a, a valid point and, and putting it across. And I think one day I was in the um the restroom and I was just coming out of the restroom and there was a elderly gentleman in there who's been in this room for a lot of lot of years and was quite vocal in this room. And he was coming out of the restroom. I held the door open for him to let him out. And he looked at me and he said, no, no, you go. Um, you're the future. We're the past. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. It really makes you realise, hey, I've made it. I've yeah. done something. So we've talked about highlights, but what has been the biggest challenges for you within your career? Yeah, there's been a, well, it's, we just hit on it a little bit earlier. Mm. Diversity mm -hmm. is massive. As I said, I'm walking into meetings, I'm walking into operations, I'm walking into areas and I'm not seeing a lot of 
British Asian people mm. that senior. Yes, I, and there's a massive need. I, I, I totally get this to bring females into the industry, and there absolutely is. Um, but there's just as enough, I think, for me, just as enough, a bigger need to, to, to get the right sort of people as well, that the, the British Asians more involved. It's brilliant. It's a fantastic mm. industry to work for. And I've, I've felt some challenges. I've been in situations where it has been apparent that I'm British Asian, and I've, I've realised that I am, and I've been reminded that I am. But it just makes me stronger. It makes me want to make sure we do everything properly. It makes me want to believe in what I do and know that I can get that message across. And, and, and to me, I'm going to get that. The other side of challenges that you'll always have in, in this industry isn't processes, it isn't policies, it isn't implementing what it is that you feel looks good and works. It's actually changing behaviours. It's cultural and behaviour change. That is a massive challenge. I can go anywhere and introduce a new piece of legislation or or maybe even put a process in. But if I can't change people's mindsets, then I can't do absolutely anything about that. I'm so glad that you've shared that with our listeners, because as you know, we really champion diversity in this industry and believe change can only happen when people speak up about their experiences. So that was really valuable. What do you think we could do better in the industry to increase diversity within the sector? Firstly, we, we can't ignore it. Mm-hmm. it. It does exist and, and it still exists. And, and this belief that it, it, it's, 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 it's gone away now, it hasn't. It absolutely hasn't. Um, we've got to get into the right communities. We've got to advertise in the right communities. And we've got to make it far more attractive because at the moment, from my my own personal experiences, there is a fear. There is a fear of coming to this industry because people just don't think they will progress. Uh, and what we have to do is is get out there. You know, we, we do it, we, we, like we said, we've just hit on, on, on the shortages of females in the industry and we go out there and we do it and we, we want to get into the curriculum and get that. We need to get out into the schools. We need to make sure people and different background of people understand what, what this industry is about. But once we get them in, we have to just accept that it's acceptable. It's okay. We're not 1980s anymore. This is 2023. It's a lot more different now. And, and, we, and there's a, ho- a lot of hardworking individuals out there. Not everyone's going to progress in this. Industry. I totally, I absolutely get that. But the percentages for Asians and any kind of, of, of background, it, it's very, very low. And, and we've got to start building this up. And, and, and like I said myself, I, I've been through it all. I've seen the dark side of it. I've seen the good side of it. Is it getting better? It's probably hidden away far more than it, than it ever was before. I, I still have that moment where somebody does not know me. They're meeting Pip for a meeting and I'll go downstairs and they do a step back. And I instantly know what that means. And, and it tells me straight away this is not what they were expecting to see. Is somebody in such a senior role to come down and, 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 and talk to them. So let's believe. Let's all act as one. But the most important thing... Let's make roads safe. It doesn't matter who's doing it. Let's just make them safe. Mm -hmm. We've delved into your career and experience. So with that all in mind, I'm going to fire some sector related questions at you. So our listeners can gauge your opinion and views on some key topics within logistics. Are you ready? Yes. (laughs) Okay. Let's start big. How do you see the logistics sector evolving over the next 10 years and what trends do you forecast? 
I think it's still going to be up and down as as it is. It's it's very uncertain. There's uncertain times in logistics at the moment, is there, with everything that's going on in the background as well. There's going to be quite a lot of changes that we will be seeing and we're witnessing and, and, and things do need to change. For my particular area of concern, there's going to be changes to legislation, I feel, as well. There's going to be approach to the driver CPC itself. That's going to be revisited. There's um, whisperings or consultation currently around maybe getting rid of the, the, the seven hours training altogether and having a one and a half hour quiz every five years, which to me is absolutely ridiculous. The training itself of drivers, if we're saying they are professional drivers and that's what they are, they need training. They need to have that little bit of getting into a classroom, if that's what it is, and just being reminded, being refreshed, but also being, being developed in, into being absolutely brilliant to what they do there is going to be again there's going to be changes around the working time regulations itself that looks like it's going to be revisited i've never been a fan if i'm absolutely honest um, i've looked at it and it's predominantly employment law that's what it is if i was to wave a magic wand i think for me we would take the six hour rule and put that into driver's hours and maybe the 48 hour working average put that into driver's hours as well the rest of it i think it's absolutely one of those things that we probably could probably could do without, and that, that is still, the roads will still be safe. The, the, the element of safety will still be there, but it's it's these sort of areas for me in my area of expertise that, that, that probably need to be revisited and and are being revisited. But let's do it, but keeping in mind what the impact is. So for the working time itself, yeah, I get that. For the driver CPC, hey, listen, reduce it maybe down from seven to five hours, fine. But no, this 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 five years of one test, I'm, I'm not agreeing with that at all. That was really interesting, Pip. So the last one was big. Let's go even bigger. Let's talk environmental. What is your view on the government's pledge for zero emission HGVs by 2040? Well, it's got to happen. We know that. Mm. We, we all have to be environmentally friendly. And, and, and there's going to be areas I feel that we, we probably will... We're going to have some maybe doubt or concerns around. And, and, and predominantly from that, it's going to be the infrastructure. Will it be ready? You know, will there be enough charging points, if that's what we want to call them, around so that the country can still carry on the way that it needs to go? Is it doable? What is it, 2035 for anything up to 2016 and then and then anything after that up to 2040? We can't keep on giving everything a grace period, can we? We, we know what, what's expected. We've had enough time. Um, so we've got to start probably looking and, and start the road now, which is it is being started now. But again, the cost itself, it, it's, 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 it's going to hit the smaller operators really, really hard. So there's going to have to be some leniency from the government itself to support that in some way. And the infrastructure, getting it ready. I mean, it's, it's, I've seen questions even now where people say to me, Hang on, if we got an electric vehicle and there's a massive traffic jam on a motorway, what if what if it runs out of power? What are you going to do? How does how does that work? We've got to take everything into account. You know, we we need to make sure that we know exactly what we're doing and and then moving forward, it, we we have to do it. We just but we have to make sure it's done properly as well. That makes sense. Let's move on now from environmental and onto the biggest issues faced by our sector in decades. We're nearly seven years on from the UK's decision to leave the European Union. Brexit is still proving the biggest headache for British businesses, ranking higher than Russia's war in Ukraine, COVID or even rising energy costs. What do you think the impact of Brexit has been and how have you managed them within your roles? It's been massive. It's mm. been huge and there's no no getting away from that. Um, it's, there's been a lot of uncertainty. A massive, you'd go to the drawing board with one version of Brexit thinking that's how it's going to suit the operation and literally it could, be, it could be two days later you're back in the room again trying to sort it out and make it fit in again. 
did we agree with it? Well, we, we can say politically, I can say no, absolutely, mm. bloody not, we didn't say. But it, it, it is here. But I just think that it was, it's almost one of them things when I look at, when we implement something or make a change, it's like we don't, we do it. And then afterwards we're picking up the pieces. We're really, we should be prepared for it up to that point And we should know exactly how it should work and then how we should filter it in. And for my area, it, again, it was this exodus of uncertainty from staff, drivers and, and, and warehouse. I didn't know what was going on, didn't know what was going on. So they were probably going back to their, their homeland. Uh, and there was a massive area around that. And then there was a shortage, wasn't there, which imp impacted on drivers and, and staff and warehouse staff, etc. Agencies, employees were suddenly having to rob Peter to pay Paul. Uh, and so it was then trying to assure people no don't stay it's going to be okay obviously there are going to be new areas that we're going to have to look at and new approaches that we're going to have to make it was just it just seemed like a really poor setup that, that just 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 went from bad to worse and is it getting any better no people are still confused yeah and how did you manage that though if people came to you with questions and concerns it was that it was looking at different how could we look at it differently could we implement different we looked at things like having to maybe train from within for staff when it came to drivers it was this old age whole thing about warehouse to wheels is that the way we do it now and actually start um getting people from the country to actually to become drivers getting people that wouldn't have thought about it in the past so looking at things like that it was also having looking at the government's idea of these seasonal workers which was an absolute farce we'll get seasonal workers in so as they come in uh, as you peak what well, we can get people in from abroad okay so what we'll do is we'll end up paying a thousand pounds to get these people over here do an assessment on them realize they can't drive the vehicles and they're not safe and having to send them back so how did that work? So it doesn't. And again, like the only thing you could do or try and do was reassurances, change your operation in a way, try and be a little bit more savvy with, with planning, etc. But also seeing if you can actually start developing from within. Mm. In addition to the challenges faced due to Brexit, we're now three years on from the beginning of the pandemic. What was that like to operate through? What did you think about the government's response and support for logistics? Oh, the, load, the roads were a lot clearer, that was mm. a fact, because nobody was out and about. How was the government support? The, the pandemic itself, if we think about the, how it happened and the time it happened, so we were, we, had, we were dealing with Brexit, we had COVID, and then we had IR35 in a really, really short period. Again, a massive impact on workforces across the whole country. Did the government help? Well, they, 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 there's a little bit of um, relaxation to driver's hours, wasn't there? So there was a relaxation to testing of vehicles. Well, to me, what was the point of relaxing, when it relaxed in driver's hours when the roads were empty anyway? The drivers were getting around a lot quicker than they ever did um, because nothing was stopping them getting around. Again, it's that thing where we'll, we'll, we'll support you and, and we'll, we'll do things differently because you've got this issue. But whereas the biggest issue was let's just give everything a little bit of a grace period. Let's get over the, the hurdles of COVID. Then slowly let's implement IR35. Let's let's look at it properly and, and make sure we right, handle that bit. Now you're going to go and talk or talk about or implement IR35. And, and it just didn't happen. It was just like cope with it get on with it and and, and resolve it. And, it and it was huge again it was another big impact that we, the industry didn't need to have it was on its knees mm. it's absolutely on its knees i was looking at drivers of obviously the people that, that could still work at, in mid pandemic drivers coming tired from what they're having to do and we, we weren't overworking we would never ever overwork a driver we, we stayed away from the relaxation as well it was a different sort of time it really was it was quite stressful for them as well and there was also the anger of 
the people that didn't have to come in were sat at home and, you know, the industry was, we, yeah, we weren't getting clapped on a Thursday, that's a fact. But, you know, without without this this industry, without these these wheels turning, and there wouldn't be food. There yeah. wouldn't be food on your tables. And then that's the biggest thing for me, if the pandemic thought was anything, is that this industry, the transport industry, has to work still throughout everything. It has to be there. It has to be at the forefront. It has to make sure that PPE is getting to the hospitals. Mm -hmm. It has to make sure that food and drink is getting to shelves. And and did and did the industry get as much support as it should have done? No, absolutely not. But I'll always say that because I always yeah. thought there's never enough support for this industry. Yeah, I can understand that. Finally, the last meaty question on our quick fire round. We can't let you leave without asking what your thoughts are on all of the LGV changes that have been brought in over the last few years. Well, having passed my test in the Mini Metro back in 1986 <laughs> and then looking at my very first role where somebody said to me, well, so what do you want to do? I said, I think I'll be a van driver while I figure out what I'm going to do. And they mean handed the keys to a seven and a half ton long wheelbase vehicle and looking at thinking, hang on, I'll just come out of a Mini Metro and that's a lorry. <laughs> I can't drive that. And that person said, oh, no, no, you have the entitlement on your license. You have a, a C1E107. You can drive that vehicle. I've never been so scared in all my life. I've been reverse into areas that I couldn't even reverse a mini metro into. <laughs> so um, I understand a bit to go, to go from B to C plus E. I was a, an advocate for that, but I did think that, that was, it was a good idea. But on the proviso, that drivers still had some form of training in a rigid vehicle. So they did a couple of weeks in a rigid and then it would go up and then they could do the, their, then do their C plus E test. This um, allowance now from, from CART is seven and a half ten, if that's what they want to do. No, I'd have to say absolutely not. When I was out and about, trust me, in the 1980s, the roads were a lot quieter mm. and it was only horse and carts and milk floats lying around. And other than that, we were all right. Um, as we get on now, as you can appreciate, nearly every household has nearly two to three carts and mm. there's a lot more traffic out on the roads. And I was very nervous as well with this um, allowance of now being able to tow a trailer without having a, a B plus C. So really, we I'm pretty certain it was a horsing community that decided let's get on this one quickly because we now don't need to do R plus E. We can now tow our horse spots everywhere if we want to and, and, and tow caravans. If we're asking about the professional side of driving, which is going from something like a B to a C plus C, but correctly trained up to C plus C level, absolutely fine. If we're saying to novices, here's the keys to a seven and a half ton vehicle, Absolutely not. We're trying to keep danger and dangerous people off the roads. We're not trying to add to that. So for me, no, I, I, I wouldn't. I, I think, like I said, for, for professional drivers that need the license, absolutely. But other than that, just leave it as it is. Okay, so if your wish would be for a new LGV driver who has started out at Cat B to be given experience in a class two before they're given the keys to a class one, who do you think this responsibility falls to? I think we should make it mandatory, absolutely. But I also think that any training company where they're salt wouldn't want to do it any other way anyway. So if we're looking at, like we said, we are taking a set of keys from a car and then and potentially to, to then be given the license of a 44 ton killing machine, as we, we've alluded to earlier, then the process should be exactly the same, but without the test for, for the, the rigid or the class two. So make it mandatory and make them have some form of training, even put a program together that it has to consist of something that even DVSA could look at to implement and then make sure that's carried out before they actually then go and sit in their class one. And then probably as an add on to that as well, whenever you go into an organisation, I'm at Linkline Transport now. So if, when you come into us, 
will take the driver out on an assessment anyway in, in the class one vehicle. So if they've got the class one license, so you take them out on an assessment, they're never left on their own and, and, and they're nurtured and they're mentored and, and they make sure that everything's okay. And we get what we want and they get what they want from that. But up to that point, let's make sure they've been trained absolutely properly, correctly. They know what's expected in, in any type of vehicle. And then once they've got their license, then there's a massive onus on the operator themselves to make sure they assess the driver properly, they train the driver properly, and they don't just chuck them out there into the deep end. You know, give them lesser runs, give them runs that are only going to take a few hours. So they're not going to panic, they're not going to get nervous, they're not going to suddenly start putting effort down to get around quicker and, and, and causing damage to the vehicle. They have that little bit of a, an area where they can slowly get a good handle of the vehicle itself, but also the operation, because don't forget, it's a brand new industry for them as well that they're coming into. But if we do it properly, we follow the processes. So mandatory from getting your class one, a couple of weeks on a class two vehicle, learning the ropes, a proper assessment, proper training, proper vehicle familiarisation, and then don't chuck them in the deep end. <laughs> that should get you a tick in every box. Sounds good. I'm sure our listeners will agree that this has been really informative. But just to finish off our conversation, whilst I was researching you for this episode, I came across your LinkedIn post where you shared openly your career plans to become a traffic commissioner. What steps are you taking to achieve this goal? The step started um, back in 2003 when I, when I joined the FTA. I've got my first insights of the FTA and I got my first insight into legislation and operations and, and what good looks like. And I've been on that career path ever since. I want to be the very first British Asian to be a traffic commissioner. And not just because I want to do it because I'm British Asian. I want to do it because I have a right and I believe in what I believe in. And I believe that it doesn't matter who you are, what you are, if you're good and you understand and you understand what good looks like, you should have every right to be able to do that that role. And I suppose for the traffic commissioners, it'd be good to have a British Asian on the other side of the, um, of the counter and not in front of them, because I'm sure they do get quite a lot. But for me, it's a career path that I've been on and I'm going to go on. Hey, it may not happen. I mean, I know traffic commissioners, sometimes you've got to carry them out in a coffin because they just don't want to leave. They like it that much. And so I've got plenty of time at the moment. It's going to be a long road. I know that. Um, but I'm still young and I'm still able. So at the moment I can move about so I can carry on doing what I'm doing. When I get obviously a little bit older, I may then have to think to slow down and now's the right time. But I think for me, it's about trying to come in with a different angle. I've seen it all. I've seen everything there is. I've worked in the operations. I've looked at the side of legislation. I've worked very closely with barristers. I've worked closely with lawyers. I've worked very closely with normal human beings, staff, drivers, operational people, transport managers. So I absolutely know what good looks like. And I think sometimes when I, I've just sat in public inquiries as, as an observer, I've looked at some of the questions being asked and thinking to myself, oh, I'd come in at a different angle because I know exactly what I'd be looking for here. So it's the wish list, if that's what we want to call it. Um, but it's something that I'm very, very passionate about, very enthusiastic about. And hey, if I could do it, I could say, look, mum, top of the world. I made it. <laughs> As expected, Pip, that was really informative. Thank you so much for joining us here today. And thank you very much for having me. We've covered off some big topics today with Brexit, the pandemic, legislation, diversity. Gosh, you, our listeners, might need to lie down. No doubt we will explore more into these subjects in future episodes. Thanks, Pip. You've certainly left us with plenty to think about. 
thanks for tuning in to this episode of Driven by Excellence. We hope you enjoyed listening. And if you did, please don't forget to click that follow button, leave us a review or share this episode with a colleague. For more information and to keep up to date with industry news, head to our website, pdtfleettrainingsolutions.co.uk.